which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Should we pray together? Gracious Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and therefore Father of us, we thank you for the amazing things that we looked at yesterday, mysteries that the angels long to look into, but which have been revealed to us in the Lord Jesus, that God himself should become a man and die on a cross for our salvation is beyond our understanding. But we pray now as we think on these things and as we meditate on your holy word that you would open up to us even further what that means for us today and forever so that we will rejoice in and delight in and praise the Lord Jesus for eternity in his name we pray amen Amen. so when I arrived as a student at Oak Hill Theological College in the year 2000 um, legends of a certain man still hung in the air His name was Shed, Um, and he was called Shed because he had a shed, and in this shed he used to have parties, and people would come and they'd be in his shed, and this was all very exciting, and um, he he was obviously one of these sort of huge personalities, he used to be a royal butler or something, and um, he used to supply the queen with whiskey, I think it was a big job, and um, he went, he had just gone off to do his curacy, and when I finished at Eight Kill, I found myself in the curacy that he had previously occupied. And uh, the study in the curate's house was a garage that had been converted in the garden. And of course, what was it called? It was called The Shed. So um, on the door of the study, in big red letters, kind of acrylic stick-on letters, it said, The Shed. And of course, I got there and I thought, well, I can't live in this guy's shadow forever. (laughs) So I thought, what am I going to do with this door? Should I just peel it all off? And then I realised, because this is the sort of person that I am, I realised that I could do something a bit 
a bit clever with the letters and remove some of them. I, I, it's not the sort of person I am that's clever. It's the sort of person who thinks they're clever. Okay, let's just be clear. All right? And um, that I could change the shed into the Hebrew name for the loving covenant faithfulness of God, chesed. Uh, and so I did. And <laughs> my study door now said chesed. And of course, no one else understood what that meant. <laughs> Most people don't have Hebrew. I mean, normal people, why would you? And um, so there it was. Every, t- every day when I went into my study in the morning, chesed on my study door, the loving covenant faithfulness of God. God's covenant love for his people. Here's the funny thing about that. It started to be quite hard for me to go to my study. Because there on the door, chesed, God's covenant love. And sometimes I would go to my study having really not thought about God since I left it. I'm a sinful human being. I forget about my creator. I get preoccupied with, you know, what's happening in the rugby or, you know, how my children are behaving or something. And sometimes I would actually come to my study door in a pretty foul mood. Some member of the congregation perhaps had been saying unkind things about me. All kinds of uh, reasons for me to feel distant from God. And this word that I had thought, well, in a sort of slightly smart-alecky way, might make me sort of remember God's loving kindness towards me, became my accuser. I know it sounds silly, but it's true. And I wonder whether you suffer from the same sorts of things that I do. Whether... Sometimes the things maybe if you sort of set things up in your life to to remind you of God's love and his kindness and your relationship with him become accusers for you. So perhaps you've taken up the discipline of reading the Bible and praying and that discipline has slipped a bit and you think I really ought to get back into reading my Bible. I'd really love to pray again in the way that I did before but the thought of actually doing that becomes more difficult because you think, this, this, is, this is my accuser, this is a sign of my failure, a sign of my weakness, a sign that I'm far from God. If I come back to that, I've got to face up to how badly things are going between me and God. Or perhaps you keep that discipline and that's, and that's part of your life, but you, you have a bad day. You think, I can't read God's word, I can't pray. Maybe on a Sunday morning you have a row with someone before you leave the house. And you turn up at church and you just feel dreadful. You think, how can I go there? I'm a sinner. You know, I'm not prepared for this. I've not come here thinking about God. I've come here thinking about what a scumbag my husband is or, you know, whatever it might be. Do you ever like me, feel far from God, feel unworthy for his presence, feel that somehow when he thinks about you, what he thinks is, oh dear. Do you? Just me? (laughs) Okay. Of course you do. Well, most of us do. Can I tell you what God thinks about when he thinks about you? Come with me to Isaiah chapter 62. 
Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn. Her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness. And all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name. That the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. A royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted. Or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah. And your land Beulah. For the Lord your God will take delight in you. And your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden. So will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So will your... So will your God rejoice over you. Okay, so I've married lots of people. Now, that's not an admission of crime. That's just an expression of part of my professional life. Okay? And last summer, I married my cousin. Um, Again, that sounds a bit weird, but... (laughs) um, The thing about doing my job at a wedding is you see the groom beforehand and throughout so um, you, you might have have you heard the old joke you know um, uh, before the wedding you, you, look, you look at the groom and, and you remember that you know, for a man being married is very much like jumping out of an aeroplane at 3,000 feet you know that one your entire future happiness depends on a large amount of white material turning up behind you um, <laughs> but grooms are the most nervous creatures on earth they look like, kind of terrified and then this amazing transformation happens when the bride arrives and you see this light in their eyes it's a beautiful thing actually to see a groom looking at his bride that's how God thinks about you when God thinks about you think bridegroom as the bride arrives isn't that what Isaiah 62 says is that not what it says As a groom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In the Lord Jesus Christ, that is you. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. When God thinks about you, what does he do? He sings a song to himself. As he rejoices in you. Come back to Isaiah with me. Come to Isaiah chapter 40. And there's a great picture of God's rescue of his people. As the people are told. You who bring. This is Isaiah 40 verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion. Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart and gently leads those who have young. Now, the first thing you notice when you see that is what a tender and amazing picture of God you have here. Here is a God whose arm is so powerful that it rules the nations. It it, it rules everything for him. It wipes away any barrier to him being with his people. 
And that same arm wraps up his children, uh, his, his people, and, and takes care particularly of those who have young, and gathers them up. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. But here's the thing that he perhaps didn't notice. Second half of verse 10. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. And you think, wow, he's bringing his people a reward. No, 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 no. This is his reward, his recompense. What is it he's bringing with him? His people. Here is God carrying his people, and what are they? They are his reward. What are you? You are his reward. He delights in you, you are his treasure. So that we can read in the book of Hebrews that the Lord Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was that joy set before the Lord Jesus? You. Your rescue. To have you with him for eternity. That was the thing that made it worth going to the cross for him. So in Revelation 21 we read of the people of God as being this great bride prepared for her groom, the Lord Jesus. So come with me into the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 5. With all that still ringing in your ears. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the words, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, just because those verses have become controversial in the last 20 years should not rob them of their power for us. Christ loves the church so much that he has given himself up for her, verse 25, and in doing so has made her holy, cleansing her. And how has he presented the church to himself, verse 27, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy, and blameless. To the extent that Christ loves the church as much as he loves himself. That is what husbands are to do and that is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And so he feeds and clothes and cares for his church. For you. In the way that he feeds and clothes and cares for himself. So what does the Bible say about you? You are God's treasure, you are his delight, he sings songs to himself about you, and there is nothing wrong with you. There is no spot, no blemish, no wrinkle to you. 
if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his perfect bride. And that is why I've called this talk, Pardon is Not Enough. Because you see, we can think about the cross, and perhaps we're very familiar with the idea that at the cross, Jesus took the penalty for my sin and somehow wiped something of the slate clean. Yes, all the stuff in the past is done. Okay, but that is not, that is not everything. When you marry someone, what happens? Okay, I, I, I don't want all the details, but when you marry someone, what's yours is theirs, and what's theirs is yours. That's what happens, yeah? So, when you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you become part of his bride, the church, everything that's yours is his, yeah? The sin. It's his. He can rightly die for you on the cross. He can take the penalty for your sin. He can, he can deal with all of it because it's his now. But what about what is his? Jesus Christ is the heir of the universe. The universe belongs to him. God made everything through him and for him, Colossians 2. He is the perfect Righteous God. He is the new Adam who never failed, who tested in a garden, refused to give in, and tempted with a tree, did not fail, but went through to the point of death in obedience to his father. And his obedience is yours. So when God thinks about you, everything that's true of Jesus is true of you. perfect life of Jesus is your life. At the cross, we don't just receive pardon. We receive perfection. We belong to God rightly forever. And that's what the New Testament means when in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31, or Philippians 3, verses 8 to 9, and elsewhere, it describes us as being made righteous in Christ. It's not just, think about it this way. There is a big difference, isn't there, between um, a judge in a court declaring pardon over someone who is guilty of a crime and, and, and saying in, in the Queen's name, you are forgiven. You know, this crime is no longer counted against you. And that judge wanting said felon to become his son-in-law to marry his daughter. There's a big difference, isn't there, between wiping the slate clean and saying, welcome, come and be a member of the family. You are an honoured person. Okay, the cross is not just a wiping of the slate clean, but a welcome into the family. That's the point, and that's what it means to be made righteous in Christ, to be made one who belongs, one who has an honoured place in the family, who God rightly can consider to be his treasure. So, all this by way of bringing us to 1 John, chapter 1. Because all of this is absolutely vital if we're to understand how to apply the gospel to our lives. You see, the book of 1 John is, like the rest of the New Testament, John wrote this letter, chapter 5, verse 13. Just flick with me to the back, first, first of all. Chapter 5, verse 13. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We have eternal life. We have confidence in his presence because of the gospel. And and John wants his uh, readers, who he calls chapter 2 verse 1, his dear children, to go on and grow in the Christian life. So he says chapter 2 verse 1, I write this so that you will not sin. So why is he writing his book? He's writing it to give them confidence in the Lord Jesus, but to transform their Christian lives. But he does it by showing them that the gospel is not just the way into the Christian life, but the way on in the Christian life. Tim Keller describes it like this. He says, look, we can think of the gospel, the talk of, talk of Jesus and his cross, as the ABC of the Christian life. He says, it's not. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. It only works if you're American. I'm sorry. It's not ABC. It's A to Z. It doesn't work so well. But you see, it's the gospel that provides the engine that drives you forward. It's the gospel that can transform you from the inside out into being the person that God wants you to be. And um, in the rest of this session and then in the next session, we're going to talk about some of the ways that that works out in terms of our relationships, in terms of the way that we think about our lives and ourselves. But in order to do that, what he needs to show us is how the gospel works and how we handle our failure. So we're going to talk about handling failure now, and then in the next session, um, sort of looking for and, 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 and growing into success in the Christian life, if you like. So how do Christians deal with the problem of sin? Well, John just teaches us the gospel again in these verses from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 2. And the first thing he does is to re-establish his credentials. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen with our eyes, looked at, and touched. This we proclaim. Look, John says, I know, and he, he, he talks about we, because he's talking about the apostles, okay? So I, like the other apostles, this is my gospel. I saw this revealed with my own eyes. I met Jesus. I was with Jesus. I touched the eternal mystery of the ages. I saw him with my eyes. I heard his teaching with my ears and he says the life which appeared and we've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim it to you that which was with the father hidden in God forever has been revealed and we are revealing it now to you in contrast to all the competing messages that are out there in the world John says here is the one true message the one we receive from the horse's mouth And why? Well, verse 3, that ye may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So this is the message that brings fellowship with the apostles, who are fellows of God. Now, fellowship's one of those kind of Christian words, isn't it? And I, I don't know, maybe you, you know this already, but um, so often you know, fellowship gets used as a sort of way of talking about kind of what you do as Christians together. You know, so you have tea and biscuits with a non-Christian, okay, and that's friendship. But you have tea and biscuits with a Christian, it's fellowship. Okay, and I don't know what the difference is. But is that what Paul's talking about? You know, we have tea and biscuits with the Father, and um, you can have tea and biscuits with us. Well, of course that's not what he means. So um, the way Don Carson explains it, and 
I can't do better than him, is uh, he says, look, what you need to imagine is a group of people get together in first century Galilee and they buy a boat and they set up a fishing business. That's fellowship. Okay, that's being in it together, part of the same thing, working towards the same end, part of a team, part of the family. Okay, that's what fellowship means. Now, don't misunderstand. I, I, I used this illustration once years and years ago uh, with a guy, and then I heard him explain it to someone else. He said, right, okay, so fellowship, right, it's like when you get a ship. <laughs> it's not about the boat, but it's about the being in it together. Okay? And if it's about fellowship with God, well, what's that going to mean? Well, let's see. This is the message, verse 5, that we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? God is light. Talked about it yesterday morning. God is light. Perfect, pure, searing holiness. And you are really going to claim, are you, that you can live however you want. You can walk in the darkness, go the other way, go your own way, away from God, and yet say, well, I have fellowship with God. How on earth could you claim that? So, John, you lie. God has nothing to do with darkness. There's no darkness in him. He can have nothing to do with darkness. What happens when light comes into darkness? It blows it away. If you walk in the darkness and claim to have fellowship with God, says John, you lie. And don't live by the truth. Now, we're going to come on to some of the implications of that for the Christian life later. But here's the first thing you can't say. You cannot say that your sin doesn't matter. Okay, you cannot say that God simply accepts me as I am. And he has no standards. You can't say that. And yet, isn't that the great temptation, perhaps for us culturally, in our generation, I still include myself in your generation, old as I am. Okay, in our generation, the temptation is to think of God as someone who, like us, doesn't make judgments because judgments are bad. No one judges me. I live life by my own rules. God doesn't make judgments because judgments are a bad thing. Well, John says, if you think that, you're, you're deceiving yourself. You're lying. You walk in the darkness, you don't know God. You don't, you're, not, you're not in fellowship with him. It's an absurd suggestion. You cannot say that sin doesn't matter. What else can't you say? Well, verse 8, you can't claim to be without sin. And if you're sort of Anglican, born and bred as I am, these are hugely familiar words. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To, To say that sin doesn't matter, you lie. You say you don't sin, you lie. You deceive yourself. The truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. God's word is clear, is it not? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And God says, you have sinned. If you claim you've not, you make him out to be a liar. Well, that's a bit of a tightly wound conundrum, isn't it, that John's presented us with? You can't claim your sin doesn't matter. You can't claim you don't have it. Is fellowship with God then even possible? Well, absolutely it is. Because what does Jesus do 
verse 7, purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, purifies us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 1, speaks to the Father in our defense. Verse 2, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. So here's the third and slightly surprising thing that you can't say. You can't say that your sin, if you're a Christian, you can't say that your sin gets in between you and God. That's the slightly strange thing, isn't it? You can't say that your sin is not, that your sin is still a problem, that your sin is a barrier. Because his son purifies us from all sin, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and speaks to the father in our defense. Now, what does Jesus say when he speaks to the father in your defense? Oh, look, I know he's done it again. I despair, really, but just this once, will you please let him off? Is that the sort of advocate? Because this is religious uh, language that sits behind this. The one who speaks to the father in our defence is our defence lawyer. That's the, the language that sits behind that English translation. He's our defence lawyer, our advocate, our counsellor. Is he pleading for leniency? No. He is not. He is pleading for justice. When Jesus stands before the Father in heaven and your name comes up, he says, I demand justice for my client. Justice, I tell you. You cannot punish their sin because you have already punished it. That's what it means in in verse 2, that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's what we were talking about yesterday. Jesus has done it. He has dealt with it. The, the, The penalty for your sin has already been completely exhausted. It would be unjust now if your faith is in Jesus Christ. It would be unjust for the Father to hold it against you in any way. In any way. Is that a shocking thought? But that is what the cross tells us. So you cannot say that your sin presents a lingering problem in terms of it being a barrier between you and the Father, between you and God. No. Jesus' blood purifies us, cleanses us, and buys us access and pleasure in the Father's presence. And you cannot say it's still a problem. And just think about what you are saying if you do say it's still a problem. If you want to hang on to your sin a bit and say, "Mm, it's still enough of a problem that somehow I shouldn't really approach God. I can't really go to this or that. I can't come to my Bible. I can't pray. I can't ask God for anything because, you know, I haven't really done anything to merit it. What are you saying when you think that? You're saying this. Well, one of these two things you're saying. On the one hand, you're saying, Jesus, your blood is not enough. What you did on the cross is great, but on its own, it's not enough. It's not enough for me. I am too bad. I must add to what you have done. Can you see how then 
what we intend to perhaps be a kind of extra level of holiness in the way that we think about ourselves. How could I approach God? I feel so bad about myself. Becomes an insult to the Son of God himself. Your blood is not enough. So you're either saying that or you're saying, well, actually, in the end, God can't accept me because even if he thinks he can, he's wrong. I know better. I am a better judge than God is. Well, now you can see what lies down that route. In the end, that's, that's, the, that's the thought of an atheist. If you really think that you can judge better than the creator of the universe, you don't believe in God as the creator of the universe, but as a figment of your own imagination. You know, we're tempted to think that, aren't we? So when David Peterson, the principal of Oak Hill, took me aside one day and said, I'd like you to come and teach here, I thought, I'll come off it. <laughs> You've obviously got the wrong person. You know, I must look like someone else. I still think that quite a lot. Um, but, you know, we think we're better judges than other people. Better judges of ourselves than other people. But you, and then you have to say, well, all right, I think you're stupid, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> if you think that's the thing, I'll, I'll do it. But with God, can you really think like that? Can you really say that? Mm -mm. He is the one who made and named every star, every planet, every hair on your head. There is nothing that he does not know. He do not know better. And so my great-great-great-great-grandfather, W.E. Coldwell, wrote this. Christ will either be a complete saviour or no saviour at all. Christ will either be a complete saviour or no saviour at all. You cannot say that what he has done is not enough. So what can you say? Well, you can say that the blood of the Lord Jesus has cleansed me, it has purified me, and it atones for me. And so what do you say about your sin? Well, you can't cover it up. You can't pretend it's not there. And you can't pretend it doesn't matter. What is the Christian way to deal with sin in your life? It is, says John, to confess our sins, verse 9. And if we confess, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just. Okay, he will do what is right. And because of what Jesus has done, what is right is to forgive you. We must face up to the reality of our sin. We cannot con conceal it. We cannot condone it. We can only confess it. And in that, we receive complete and perfect forgiveness and purification from all unrighteousness. So how do you deal with failure? Confess it. <clears throat> how freeing is that I spend my life wanting to hide my real self from people I think if they knew the real me they'd hate me it's not true with God is it he knows the real you there's no point pretending he doesn't and openly and freely you can confess your sin and failure to him and know that not only will he deal rightly with it but that dealing rightly with it means forgiving it and changing you. Isn't that freeing? Doesn't that change your life? If you're not living in that at the moment, would it not just change your life completely to say, 
I can come to the foot of the cross and lay down every single one of my burdens. I have nothing left to prove. Because the king of the universe sings songs to himself when he thinks about me. I'd like to finish this session just by telling you a a story about how I got really confused about this. And how it nearly destroyed me as a Christian. So I mentioned yesterday when Andy was asking about university and things that have been tough. And and how I'd been a bit keen. Well, I got to university, you know, I think going on okay as a Christian. I got really stuck into the Christian union. And... It turned out I knew knew my Bible quite well, and people kind of respected that, and respected me, and started to look up to me, and there was, you know, I was kind of tagged quite early on by, you know, the guy who was president of the CU, and he sort of said, oh, you know, you ought to be president of the CU when I go, and all the rest of it. You know, and I sort of, this is great. Here I am, super Christian, strolling around the campus, spreading light and joy wherever I go. (laughs) And of course, you know, I started thinking about me a lot. Super Christian. And I became proud. And I became kind of obsessed with my performance as a Christian and kind of how other people thought I was getting on. I knew all the things to say. I'm good at that. And as I became proud, I became lazy. I stopped reading my Bible. I stopped praying. I mean, I didn't need to pray. I'm super Christian, weren't you? You know, I'm self-sufficient. You know, I never thought this out loud, okay? But looking back, I can see that this is what was going on in my heart. And we got to a mission, a university mission. And um, a number of my friends were sort of beginning to consider the claims of the Lord Jesus, and I wake up in the middle of the night. And it was a scary moment, actually. I woke up in the middle of the night. I heard a voice, and it said, Nick, you don't have enough faith. And I couldn't sleep. And I couldn't be on my own in a room for weeks. I thought, that's true. I, haven't. I don't have enough faith. I'm, God must hate me. And um, I tried all kinds of stuff as a Christian you know, for months. And, and, and seriously, I, you know, I probably developed a bit of an anxiety disorder at the time, uh, trying to somehow come to terms with my failure as a Christian and, and to put it right. And no matter what I did, I couldn't, I couldn't get it sorted out. I couldn't, I couldn't get it right. So I um, arranged to go and see a Christian counsellor at a church, at a Church of England church, at a very big Church of England church called St. John's. And um, it was a few miles away. I borrowed uh, Sam's bike. She was my girlfriend at the time my wife now, so riding this little white lady's Peugeot um, through the streets of Birmingham in the autumn evening. I remember it was sort of um, orange street lights and wet roads <coughs> and leaves everywhere and kind of me slightly trembling, thinking I, you know, I, can't, I can't bear the thought of facing up to who I really am, but it's going to have to happen. I'm going to go and talk to this person. Maybe they can help, but something's got to change. And I got to the church, and I... Um, found the person I was supposed to be meeting with and um, he said I'm sorry I'm really really embarrassed but I'm double booked I've got another meeting I can't see you and I thought oh no 
And, and he said, I mean, if you want to wait for an hour or so, you know, I can see you after the meeting. And I said, yeah, come, I'm desperate. I'll wait. And um, he, uh, he went off and left me in the room. Now, you know I was pious, okay? So this explains what happened next. I had a book of sermons in my pocket. <laughs> okay, and it was a book of sermons from the first ever word live. And um, I didn't have a phone in those days, so I thought, well, what do I do? Well, I better read this book of sermons. So I pulled it out, and I sort of flicked through it, you know, without any joy in my heart. And thought, well, what shall I read? And um, I flicked through. No, no, no. Oh. And the reason I thought, oh, was because there was one by Dick Lucas. And I'd never heard Dick Lucas preach. I didn't know if you know about Dick Lucas, but he was rector of St. Helen's Bishopsgate for a long time. And I knew that he was like a name and someone I ought to be able to converse intelligently about. So, you know, if, I, if I'd read one of his sermons, I could talk about Dick Lucas, and that would be great. So... Uh, I started to read. And it was a sermon on Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after he was caught out by the prophet nation, having committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. And um, it's, it's a, just an outpouring of David's grief at his sin before God. And as um, this sermon goes on in, in, in the book, uh, it got to the point where Dick Lucas says, the person who's really understood this will be content to be nothing more than a sinner saved by grace for all of their days. And you know that line in the song, my chains fell off, my heart was free? Like that. It was an extraordinary moment. The grace of, grace of the gospel just came flooding into my heart. And I thought, of course I'm a sinner. That's what I'd forgotten. And of course I'm saved by grace. That's the gospel, isn't it? I'd forgotten the gospel. And the guy came back in. Sorry, mate, you're too late. <laughs> and he was. And you know, in many ways, that was the turning point of my whole life. As an adult. Content to be nothing more than a sinner saved by grace all of my days. If you try to live any other way, you will falter in the Christian life. Because the gospel is not the ABC, it is the A to Z. Should we pray together? Gracious God, we thank you for the freedom and confidence we have in your presence because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the sinless Saviour died. We are right with you forever. And though we find it, some of us, really very hard to swallow that you could rejoice over us as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus that is true. And that is true despite the fact that you know everything there is to know about us. Lord God, give us grace by the power of your spirit to trust in the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. In such a way that we will know the freedom and the joy and the grace and the confidence that comes. 
with facing up to the reality of how awful our sin is and how complete the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus is. And that we will be your delight forever because of it. In Jesus' name we pray these things through the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen.